The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. What's up, everybody? Orange and Black Insider Friday. That means listener questions live. And I think I startled John there in the opener when I, uh, <laughs> with, with the music there, I saw you jump, buddy. Uh, wasn't even fully awake yet. Jeez, man. <laughs> Neither am I. Happy Friday to you, man. How you doing? I'm, Aside I'm, from a little startled. <laughs> I'm good now. I'm, I'm awake. I'm alert. We're, we got some questions to get to for sure. Who needs, who needs coffee when we can blast you with some uh, podcast music? That's for sure. Well, happy Friday to everybody. Thanks for tuning in live if you're joining us live, whether it's on our YouTube channel, Cincy Jungle's Facebook page, or uh, one of our Twitter accounts. Appreciate that. And those are one of the avenues in which you can get in touch with us for this episode to submit a question. Um, live YouTube chat, an article on Cincy Jungle, one of our Twitter accounts, the OB Insider at gmail.com. Call or text 949-542-6241. Um, we've got a lot of different ways for you to get in touch with us. We're going to be here for a little bit answering your questions. A lot to talk about. Even since we took the air on Wednesday, some interesting developments. And hopefully you caught that show because we have uh, Sam Hubbard on that episode, as well as a standalone episode of that interview with him, courtesy of Miller Lite. Great talking with him. We've had some cool guests over the past month, month and a half um, with uh, on the show, which has been awesome, awesome, awesome. And uh, we hope you've enjoyed that. We are trying to hammer you with content as the regular season is around the corner. And of course, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. Icon is down below, below John and that SB Nation icon. So click that, subscribe, click the bell to be notified uh, when we go live, when new content is available. Give a thumbs up and like the Cincy Jungle Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter at Cincy Jungle, and you can get all of the audio stuff on your favorite audio platform by subscribing to the Cincy Jungle podcast channel, and that is on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google, all of the major ones were on there, so you can get this show, you can get Talking Football with Bengal Jim and Friends, as well as Coach Speak and Chalk Talk with Matt Minnick, and we have, John, man, we've, uh, I'm looking at the, the catalog of this week alone, man, we've got probably about five or six episodes. And then you include this one. We're looking at uh, probably, I think this is our fifth or sixth, I think of the week here. So trying to give the people a lot of content. Hopefully they enjoy it. Give them what they want, man. Football season's ramping up. You got a content piece every single day, you know, get on it. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Well, let's, we've got a couple of questions queued up and the ones that will take priority are the ones in our YouTube chat. If you super chat those, those will take precedence over others. And that money that you would donate with a super chat would be going to the Pollock Family Foundation, givesendgo.com slash Pollock Family Foundation. You can go there. We are supporting that charity for a while this year. So if you do want to donate, you can go directly there. Or if you want your question to get to the top uh, and the front of the line here, super chat us and that money will go to the Pollock Family Foundation. But John, you wanted, before we kind of address some of the questions I've already got, texts and an email and all kinds of different stuff going here before we do that there were some helmets being swung yesterday <laughs> at practice what the hell happened that was crazy yesterday it seems like we didn't even know what was going on while it was happening and <laughs> yeah. you know, credit to you know bengals media and the nfl media who were there trying to follow along just the pure chaos that was happening i guess it started 
somewhat relatively tame as far as intra-squad scrimmage skirmishes go. You had, after a Jamar Chase to Joe Burrow connection, Lel Collins and Rams defensive end Leonard Floyd were going back and forth, kind of chopping it up after the play. A little bit of pushing and shoving, whatever. It's preseason, it's training camp, that, that stuff happens. I think on the next play then, you had kind of... Uh, I'm sorry. At first, it was Ishan Robinson and Lel Collins uh, initially getting into it, but then it transitioned to Floyd and Collins. And apparently, they have some history together, going back to when Floyd was with the Bears and Collins was with the Cowboys. I think they practiced against each other last year um, when uh, the Cowboys and Rams had their intra-squad scrimmages going on in, in the preseason. So they, they have somewhat of a history. So it got a little chippy. For the second play in a row, Collins was in the middle of it. Eventually, they pulled Collins from the drill or 11-on-11s in place of Deontay Smith because tensions were kind of raised at that point. But it's still pretty run-of-the-mill type you know, bickering, melees or whatever going back and forth. Then Lel Collins comes back onto the field. And at this point, it's like the fuse is already lit and there's a ton of dynamite in the middle of all of this. And it just took one more play up until Lel Collins, I guess, ended up with a helmet in his hands and it was a, a big you know, fight going around it, or everything. At the time, I guess it was told that Lel was swinging or throwing the helmet and there was a picture of him in the middle of a pile with the helmet of a Rams player. But nothing really happened after that. I got the timeline of events mixed up. Then Lael leaves the field off after that happened, right? And then Deontay Smith goes on the field. Lael comes back, and this is when things went out of control. So there was just one play after Collins returned, and like Collins and Floyd were in the middle of it again, and the entire team is now in on this, right? And we've seen the video from Ad D. Payne Clain, who I think was in the family and friends section of the practice field kind of watching this and you see in the middle of all of this Aaron Donald ends up with a Bengals helmet and starts swinging it and it makes contact with at least one player I've been able to discern with like 95% confidence that that player was Cordell Volson based off of his what I think what it looked like yeah yeah, number 67 and you could hear like the clank of his helmet against the other helmet and then he was swinging around again. I don't think he was even aiming for any player in particular. He was just trying to make contact with whomever. He ends up on the ground. Things, you know, continue to you know go back and forth or whatever. But things eventually calm down after that. And then practice is over. Like they had, according to Zach Taylor, like maybe three more plays or reps to go through. So at that point, like there's just there's nothing left to do. Like both teams are just kind of fed up with one another. It was something that was just boiling and boiling and boiling up to this crescendo and yeah i I think at the time like it it seemed like between lael and and floyd you know things were kind of bad and then this was just another thing kind of on top of it and maybe aaron donald kind of came or found himself in the middle of it so initially that 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 was like my reaction like oh this is just something that just kind of happens but just seeing like the video evidence of what donald was doing i think we can discern that what he was doing was a little bit more egregious. And the fact that it didn't even seem to like involve him initially. And then he just kind of like lost control and did something that's pretty taboo in terms of what NFL player conduct is. Especially when you go back to the whole Mason Rudolph, Miles Garrett thing from a, from what a couple of years ago now where, you know, you're swinging a helmet at a guy that doesn't have a helmet on and all kinds of, I mean, look, I I don't, it was pretty ugly. Uh, it, It was, and you can blame Donald. You can blame whoever you want on that. I mean, it's pretty ugly. It did look like Volson was the guy that was getting swung at. Um, you saw some stuff. I think it was Kappa and, and Karis earlier in the week getting up against Donald and others. And you mentioned the history between Collins and, and Leonard Floyd. So there's a lot of different moving parts here. The other aspect of it in general, John, is just this is the end uh, or, it, you know, it's kind of the, the dog days of summer training camp, all that kind of stuff. And quite honestly, at practice guys get chippy in general, you see your own teammates getting after each other. And now you've got this team coming in, you know, you've got an, just another team and it gets chippy. It gets even more chippy than it has been. And then you add the kind of the lighter fluid on the fire in terms of what happened earlier this year, the Bengals lose to this team in dramatic last-second fashion. What's kind of interesting to me, John, is that 
when you when you look at this, the Bengals. I, I said I got a text earlier today from from a, a friend of mine who's also a Bengals fan, and he said, "Man, I, I loved what I saw at practice." Well, let, let me I'll, I'll touch on that in just a second. But we've heard all spring and summer how the Bengals have been a bit buttoned up, and they've been a bit, you know, hey, we're 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 mellow, we're confident, we've you know, we're just going to do our thing. You heard Sam Hubbard say it. You heard Cam Taylor Britt say it on our show. All kinds of players have said this that. Look, we're we're pretty confident about things. We're just going to go about things quietly and do our own thing. But you can kind of tell, at least from this, that these two teams and the Bengals, maybe in general, have a little bit of a, an extra. I I don't know what you would call it, frustration, aggravation, whatever, with this team and losing to them uh, a few months ago. I don't like seeing helmets being swung at people. I don't like hearing about things being dirt, you know, players doing dirty things in practice or anything like that. But I, I in a way, John, and I, I don't like dirty stuff. That's not my thing. But I, I like the fire. I like seeing the fire. I like seeing a little bit of the, you know, hey, you know, the, we're we're not really cool with what happened a few months ago. We're, we're, you know, we're, we're going back to business. We're doing all these things, but we're not that stoked on being runners up last year. And we don't really like this team given what transpired just a few months ago. So, and then you've got the new guys on the offensive line who are set to protect Joe Burrow kind of in the middle of this scrum against arguably the best player in the league and Aaron Donald. So I, there, there are aspects. I, I like the the fire. I like some of that stuff. I don't like the dirtiness. I don't like seeing helmets being flung around and swung at players. So I hope I hope what I'm saying is making sense to you and to others when yeah. I'm when I'm relaying it. But um, I, I, just from having this low key buttoned up approach all off season and see this, you know, especially against this team, I, I kind of like to see elements of that fire, not how it all played out on on Thursday. Yeah, I guess. In general principle, like, I I agree with you 100%. Like, I, I think as long as everyone came away kind of unscathed and no one was harmed, like the coaches kind of, you know, take this with a grain of salt. Like, yeah, this is what happens. And it's nice to see that passion and fire. I, I guess what bothers me about a lot of this is just the stuff that we don't know. And the, the, there is that general assumption that, yeah, the Bengals are, are kind of mad about the Super Bowl. And, you know, they're kind of taking out that frustration in, in ways where it just fit what was happening during practice. The thing with me is that Lyle didn't play in the Super Bowl, and yep. he has that aforementioned history with Leonard Floyd, and that could have just been the crux of the whole thing. It's just a personal beef with someone that you've known from the <laughs> yeah. past. And, and like that, yeah. that honestly could be what it is, and people kind of ran with it saying, oh, Lyle is just you know instilling this, this attitude of not taking any crap from opponents, and that also could be a contributing factor. But at the end mm-hmm. of the day, we, we don't know how this all started. The, apparently, it was... Leonard Floyd was kind of beating Lel Collins in some of those individual drills, and it was carrying over to 11 on 11 working. It could just been Lel just getting fed up, and you know he just kind of lost his temper. So that sticks in my mind, but also just the fact that I, I get it that we can discern the difference between what Donald did and what Floyd and Collins were doing, but I, I feel like if if people are going to be okay with the, the the previous interactions and the things that led up to to the Donald incident then it's hard for me to be like, oh, yeah, we can stand on a soapbox and, and just label Donald as the villain, even though right. things were like escalating to that inevitable point. And especially with Lael still on the field, like that's a target for the Rams after everything that was happening. So I, I'm not I'm not um, scapegoating for Donald. I'm, I'm not saying what he did was right. I'm saying that it, it makes sense to me, as egregious as it was, it makes sense to me why things got to that point because of everything that was happening. It's not like players in the moment saying, okay, we got to calm down. We, we can't go overboard. Like when you're in that moment, especially we, we've seen this happen multiple times, just this preseason, like teams going too far and just, you know, resulting to brawls and melees in these scrimmages. It, it's, it, it seems like an inevitability at that point. Obviously, again, the incident was a little overboard, but I understand how it got to that point. I do too. And it's, again, I think part, it's part of it of finally going up against another team in practice. I mean, Practice is never as fun as the games, and the and the games themselves have been pretty clean uh, from from both teams in the first two weeks, um, from all teams rather uh, in the first two weeks from what we've seen in the Bengals preseason game. So this kind of stuff hasn't been happening. It's just this team, it's the star players, it's the new players, 
It's going up against practice, going up in practice against another team. And of course, like you said, maybe some other contributing factors, history, maybe Collins not being pleased about the fact that he's being beaten. Honestly, there might be a little bit, whether you're, I don't know if this was a conscious thing or maybe I'm just grasping at straws and saying this, but you know, in baseball, when your, uh, your manager comes out and puts on a big show and a charade arguing with the umpire about specific calls and that sort of thing. And it supposedly shows it's, it's instead of just really pushing to have a call changed or that sort of thing, or calls being changed going forward in that game. It's also a little bit of a show that, Hey, I've got my players back. Yeah. Maybe there's a little bit of that going on here too. I don't know if that makes any sense to anybody, but um, a lot of different things, some ugliness to it, some factors I do, I do like, you know, kind of not being pushed around. I like that sort of mentality, but you got to, you got to be able to rein that in. And, and, you know, that's been honestly part of a thing under Zach Taylor as opposed to Marvin Lewis, where a lot of these dumb penalties, these after the whistle penalties have been extremely limited. And some of these off field issues, all that stuff have been extremely limited. So hopefully this isn't a, a trend and this is just kind of a, a blip on the radar here, but undoubtedly we've already kind of got some questions on the, on those incidents and undoubtedly we'll get more, but we wanted to touch on that to start the show. John, I want to go here because this is a very generous donation from Mr. Whisper and Mr. Whisper is always someone that seems to be donating via super chat in the, in the season, the, you know, all kinds of things, whether it's to us or to a charity like the Pollock foundation. So a very uh, Pollock family foundation. So very generous here. Good question here about Trey Hill. Trey Hill's play has been impressive in the preseason, and Dave Lapham said similar praise. Have you noticed the same, and why do you think he isn't in the left guard battle with Carmen struggling and Volson learning as a rookie? Well, I think it comes down to Trey Hill being the backup center and the fact mm-hmm. that they appreciate that depth. And I can't think of another guy who's likely to make the 53 who can also snap or has experience playing center. So like that was the whole thing with Ted Karras. You know, there was the argument of, you know, having played left guard, bring in the center like a Tyler Linderbaum and have him be like an emergency center. Well, Trey Hill's the emergency. Uh, he's the emergency center right now. And if he's not completely noticeably better than both Jackson Carmen and Cordo Volson, and he might be better than Jackson Carmen at this point, but if he's not like by far in a way, like the best option and gives them like an above average starter there, then he's probably better as that first interior lineman off the bench. You can play all three spots, but most importantly, if something happens to Karras, like they need someone who can snap it. That's primary reason. Number one, that I would agree with you as well. And I, I mean, it's, there's value, whether you think he could start at left guard or be in the competition or whatever, there's value in being a backup center and an emergency guy that can play a couple of different uh, spots on the line. He has looked better this year, but John, there's a thing with Trey Hill and Jackson Carmen, as opposed to Volson, where the Bengals have this weird situation where because of injuries and other kinds of, of situations, they have sample sizes on Jackson Carmen and Trey Hill. And it's not, very big for either of them. And it's not very good for either of them in terms of regular season games. When Trey Hill has been in regular season games, there's a lot of penalties. There's a, you know, a lot of issues there. So they may feel like, Hey, you know, even though he's showing some growth this second season in Trey Hill, I mean, we kind of saw a little bit of what he is going to be against regular season starters. Um, I don't know, but again, I think the primary reason in general though, is just look, he's got value as our backup center and backup swing interior lineman. And, you know, if we have to play him in a pinch, we will, and we'll rely on him, but uh, you know, and, and hope that this improvement that we've seen in, in the preseason will carry over. But in the regular season last year, he was kind of a little bit of a penalty machine. Yeah. A, a lot of a penalty machine. It's yeah. like once every five snaps, it seemed like he was getting flagged. So yeah, I, I feel like if he was a left guard, primarily he would definitely be in the battle and he might even, be winning the battle based off the progress that he's made. And I think he's made good progress enough to the point where he's that first guy to come off the bench. Not It's not Jackson Carmen or it's not, it shouldn't be Hakeem at energy if he's going to be continuing a guard. It's Trey Hill. And I think there's value to that for being a six round pick. Absolutely. Let's get to another, because uh, we said, hey, we're going to prioritize these. And we did get a, a, a text. And thanks for the little poke reminder there, Dustin, and for the donation. Um, Dustin from Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City, good Good place. I've been uh, been around there, visited. Nice, nice area in Utah. There, I feel like the NFL model. This is this is an intense question here. Uh, a good one. I feel like the NFL model is broken, but great for parity 
I simply cannot find a scenario where you can build a consistent Super Bowl contender when you have massive quarterback contracts and wide receiver contracts. On one hand, it places emphasis on player development, but that contradicts what a lot of people say in needing to spend in free agency because player development is difficult. Willie Anderson has even said how coaches simply don't have time for player development. And now with essentially limited off seasons, you can barely get your hands on players. Like Dick Vermeil said in his interview during the hall of fame game, you don't get better by doing less thoughts. Um, I'm going to tee this up by saying this. There was, I, I think it was by Ben Solak uh, now with the ringer. He put out mm-hmm. a really interesting article on this. I'll have to find the link and I'll share it with everybody there. So you can, it's on the ringer. Um, I don't normally regularly read the, the ringer admittedly, but I thought it was a very interesting article on the Cincinnati Bengals. And it's uh, the title's a little misleading because it's like, why aren't the Bengals going all in on free agency and all this kind of stuff. And it talks about the history of the Bengals, why they don't necessarily need to because of the friendly contracts they have with the nucleus on offense with major contributing players right now, there's a lot of different, and then obviously paying, paying Joe Burrow going forward. So there's a lot of things with that, but, I agree to an extent that it's hard to create a consistent Super Bowl contender a la the Patriots in the mid-2000s, late-2000s, that sort of thing, I guess, based on where the NFL is headed with quarterback and wide receiver contracts. But I, I think they're, you know, not only is it maybe the Bengals have lay out the blueprint, maybe another team does, but you're still seeing teams being able and not not necessarily the New Yorks, the Dallas Cowboys, that sort of thing. I mean, Kansas City's in the mix. So they, they, they've paid their quarterback a ton. The Kansas City's in the mix every year. There are a number of other teams you see get, get through every year. The Ravens seem to be in the mix every year, the Steelers. So it really comes down to organization, how, how the organization is run. And you got to get the figureheads in place in order to – and that's head coach and quarterback. You have to have the right synergy and the right people there in order – for your team to consistently be there. Hopefully the Bengals have that. I think we're pretty sold right now on both of those spots for the Bengals right now. Reed and Mahomes have shown that. Obviously Harbaugh and whoever he has at quarterback has shown that over a number of years. Tomlin, the same thing. So, you know, if you if you have that quarterback, if you have the head coach, you're going to be you're going to be set set up pretty well. You got to have a star wide receiver. The Bengals have a few. And then of course, you know, at that point you can say, look, I think it's a pick your poison. We're going to invest heavily on the offense and make sure we have the right head coach. And then we're just going to keep drafting defense and then, you know, kind of do what we can in free agency. Or you say, we're going to pay the quarterback. We're just going to keep drafting wide receiver, add pieces in free. I mean, there's a couple of different approaches, but um, it's going to be difficult for a lot of teams right now to be able to pay huge money to a quarterback, huge money to wide receiver or more than one wide receiver. And then also, Oh, let's get a premier edge rusher. Let's, Let's go out in free agency, get a premier, you know, tackle, that sort of thing. You're going to have to kind of pick your poison, in my opinion, in order to create this perennial contender in today's NFL. I think it's, at least for the last 20, 25 years, it's been equally tough to build a perennial contender because, I mean, I'll just say it. I feel like for as great as Tom Brady is, he definitely skewed the perception of what greatness and the Patriots in general skew the perception in my opinion, like what a great NFL team is in the modern like era of football, because Tom Brady, I mean, he never took a ton of money per year from the Patriots. And he was always, Mm -hmm. they were always able to continue supplanting talent around him. And for various reasons, why Tom decided to do that, he might be married to a multimillionaire like model, but you know, that's beside the point. Regardless, the Patriots are such a huge outlier and people look at them as the bar for like perennial success. And I don't think that that should be the standard for anyone. Like the fact that the Kansas city chiefs made three consecutive AFC championships, went to two super bowls and won a super bowl to me, that that's, that's insane. That's there. Like that, that's, that's, that's even beyond the standard. And they're still, they pale in comparison to what the Patriots did in 20 years with Brady and Belichick. So when it comes to now, that you have contracts that are more aggressive in terms of paying the player up front with guaranteed escrowed cash and everything like that. Like, yeah, it seems more difficult on the surface, but I feel like it's it's just really hard to not only win a Super Bowl, but to win multiple. And the Patriots did it in a way that I don't think will ever be done again. And that shouldn't, 
I guess in, in my mind, that's what I think of when I when people think of like continued success. And it, I just don't think it's ever going to be emulatable again. And I don't think it has a ton to do with the way that like contracts are going. I think it's already been really tough, but I think you hit the nail on the point. Uh, whenever you have that quarterback, like you're always going to be in contention to do something meaningful. And that's why the Bengals, like their number one priority is to retain Burrow. And whether or not they lose uh, a receiver in either T. Higgins or Jamar Chase, if they keep one, that, that will also help keep the window alive because it's the two most important positions on the offensive side of the ball. And offense is king and will probably remain king for a long time in the NFL. So if you have those pieces and you're able to continue to draft well and also utilize free agency the way that the Bengals have been doing, where it's not just throwing a ton of total money out there, but it's finding value and getting guys who supersede like the, the paper monetary value that they have onto the field by playing, I guess, above their contract level. As mm-hmm. long as you're able to do that to a certain extent with that quarterback, I think you are as doing just as well as anyone else is at maintaining a window and sustaining success. Kind of a nuance to what I said about the organ that, you know, just kind of, I threw out a blanket statement about the organization. Well, with that comes the ability to draft effectively. And it seems under Zach Taylor, now granted the Bengals stumbled into some high picks. So they were able to grab a lot of talented players in the, in the, you know, first couple of draft classes from Zach Taylor, but it seems as if for the most part, they are drafting much more effectively Uh, outside of, you know, a lot of the 2019 class. But, I mean, the 2020 class looks exceptional right now. The 21 class, there's a lot of contributors there, including Jamar Chase. And, you know, you've already seen some good things out of Dax Hill, and you've got high hopes for others in this in this class here. So, you know, the, the big swings and misses are fewer and far between with the Bengals than they were in the later years of Marvin Lewis and throughout really the scattered years of Marvin Lewis, you're going to miss on guys. That's just how it goes, but you can't miss on the the very high picks and you can't miss on, you know, the the other picks. Now, when you look around the NFL to your point, who's kind of been the perennial uh, since, since the Belichick Brady divorce, I guess, who's been kind of the perennial, the, the perennial powerhouses, you know, you look at the chiefs, the Bills are kind of in that, well, are they consistent or on that cusp that, you know, they're kind of in it. The 49ers over the last few years have been have been in it. The Packers over the last few years have been in it. I mean, they're again, the Ravens, the Steelers, and now you've got the Bengals who, you know, are they on that cusp of being a consistent contender? You would like to think so after everything they showed last year. And there are a couple of other teams, but what's the what's the consistent factor there? The coach and the and the quarterback in a lot of those situations. So that's kind of what it comes down to, but excellent question there by yeah. Dustin. Uh, where do you want to go next, John? So we had another generous donation from Mr. Whisper, and he's okay. asking, "What are your thoughts on Alan George, a, an undrafted free agent at cornerback? He's apparently impressing a lot of people. Are you seeing and hearing the same?" So, Anthony, what are your thoughts on Alan George through two preseason games? Uh, I mean, I, I've seen some things I like. There, there are a couple of things that. You know, both he and Delonte Hood, they've had some nice moments. They've had some moments also where you go, okay, um, that's that's where the inexperience comes in here. I, I think I think we're looking at a developmental player. Maybe he's a guy that they – and they, they like to keep, uh, you know, some of these guys around for a while. They've done this before. Um, you know, you've seen Winston Rose and others that they've kind of hung on to and tried to work with here. So that's where I kind of see – here because I I think the top of the defensive back group is is pretty set and then we talked last week about or this last Wednesday about the emergence of of uh, Jalen Davis right so um, a, a guy that I think is is making a strong case to get onto the roster um, so there just may not be current room here but it could be one of those guys they hang on to to develop. They've done that with some other secondary players. Um, that's just kind of my my initial impressions of him. Yeah, I think Alan George has done a lot in training camp and preseason to make uh, his his claim or his, his, to stake his claim for the roster, especially just being an undrafted guy at a position that's really tough to play for a rookie. So the fact that he was playing ahead of Cam Taylor Britt in practice at one point, mm-hmm. obviously showing enough to the coaches that he deserves some of those reps, I, I think that... That speaks a lot. I also, just with this discussion specifically in terms of like if he makes the roster and if he's impressed enough, I think it depends on what type of depth that they're looking to keep because it could it could come down to a decision between 
Alan George and like Jalen Davis. We talked about Jalen Davis in, in our weekly show a couple of days ago, but he's mainly just a slot cornerback. If they need mm-hmm. depth on the boundary, George has been playing on the boundary. And I right. think personally he's done okay. Like he's done well enough to continue staying with the team at, at a certain capacity. I think he's really good at kind of identifying the ball deep on, on those vertical routes. He's a little bit rough around the edges, defending stuff underneath, but that kind of comes to the territory of an, an undrafted player in his rookie season. So mm-hmm. if the Bengals decide that, you know, there's enough here that he's shown that, you know, he's worthy of being on the roster in some capacity and we need depth be, behind guys like Awuzier and Eli Apple because Taylor Britt is hurt. Then I can see him having done enough to make the team. And there's a great article on, on Cincy Jungle right now where you can read my thoughts on the matter and Matt and coach Matt Minnick's thoughts and Drew Garrison's thoughts. And Matt did stake his claim for Alan George to make the team because of what he's done uh, in the preseason this year. So, yes, I, I do think he's impressed. I, I think um, his standing and the roster is validated. But, you know, beyond that, we'll, we'll just have to wait and see what the coaches decide. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that there's obviously the difference that he's been put. George has been playing on the outside. Davis is more the inside slot corner. It's more just, you know, how many do you keep at that position group in general was kind of my my thinking with that. But I, I think what you said also – there, there's one kind of in my in my estimation right now there's one kind of pathway where he can sneak onto the final roster and that is uncertainty with Taylor Britt and his injury um so you know we <laughs> we've seen this before with other injuries oh you know it's going to be a couple weeks oh you know everything's going yeah. fine uh so I, I would love to see Taylor Britt in there I would love to see him contribute as a rookie I have high hopes for him but if there is a setback if there is a longer rehab process than anticipated. Maybe that is where Alan George sneaks his way onto the roster. Um, but as of now, I think the Bengals have, you know, a lot of those questions answered for now, but he has impressed, especially for being an undrafted guy and a guy that not a lot of people knew going into this spring and summer. And, you know, he's, he's made a name for himself. So at a minimum, I think he's, he's, Definitely deserving of a of a spot on the practice squad to develop and potentially continue with the Bengals. I've you know I think there's there's some good clay to mold there. Um, I'll let you go again since I took the first few there, John. If you see one that we need to get to, we do have texts and other things that are coming in as well. But uh, what do you what do you see in here? So we had a question from Mark Fry who's asking about the punter competition. Um, mm. I've always been a Huber fan, like myself and like you, Anthony. But as he says, all good things do eventually come to an end. I I really don't know. I, I want to say that it's leaning towards Chrisman just because he hasn't necessarily screwed up in the preseason. And maybe maybe that's the dynamic of what they've been looking for. Like they're going to give him equal opportunities or even more opportunities than Huber. See what he does with it. So long as he doesn't, you know, kind of piss his pants a little bit, he gets the job just because there's that value of upside and youth everything that goes with replacing a 37 year old player, regardless of the position that he plays. So the fact that he hasn't done anything that stood out negatively, he hasn't been perfect. I I think he himself said that it's the hang time. that's more important than just how far down the field you can, you can punt it. So like the distance of what, of how far he's punting hasn't been the issue. Maybe the hang time is where he needs to improve a little bit, but I don't think that's enough to sway them back to Huber. If they were already, you know, giving Chrisman every single chance to, you know, take this job and run with it. I think he's done enough if that's their thinking. But unfortunately, we just don't know their thinking. We're not going to know until they make the decision next week. But I, I would say if I were to lean one way, it's Chrisman. But I, I, I'm not confident enough to say that to write it in with Sharpie right now. You all come to this show for strong opinions observations, astute analysis, all kinds of things. And what you're going to get from this question, Mark Fry, is two I don't knows. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there, there's that. So I've got an I don't know on this one either. Uh, or also, but I mean, it's just like, I, part of me thinks because of who Darren Simmons has shown who he is as a special teams coordinator, it's consistency. It's sticking with people you know. It's sticking with people you trust and all of that. I, so I can see how and why Huber would have the the upper hand here or the upper leg, so to speak. I mean, I, I, let's let's be honest. Drew Chrisman has bid his time to, based on everything he has been been through with this team, on and off the roster, on and off the practice squad, all 
I mean, he is he has done everything that he has been asked and then some to earn his shot here. The thing I will say about this, John, is number one, there's two things. Number one, isn't it great that we're talking about a punting competition and not about who what's going to happen at right tackle? What's going to happen at right guard? What's going to happen at left guard like we've done over the past handful of years? Who else is going to step up? Where else do we have? It's nice to have this kind of discussion instead of yeah. so many other unsettled starting positions. Number two, what I want to say is and I've kind of hinted at this, I think last Wednesday, but this element of the Bengals in terms of punting the football may not be as huge of a role on this year's team as a lot of people think it is. I think they're going to go for fourth downs a lot, as long as it's not outrageous yardage and you're at your own like five yard line or something like that. I think you're going to go, you're going to see them go for fourth downs a lot. If it's manageable, I think you're going to see them, trot out Evan McPherson for 50 plus yard field goals a lot, regardless of the weather venue, etc. So yes, you need a punter. Yes. You need an able one. Yes. You need to have one that works well with the special teams unit, but I don't know how big of a role the punter will have on the 2022 Bengals this year. And it's also like, yeah, punting it far and having hang time is important, but also a, an aspect of that is, you know, punting inside the 20, you know, pu- you know, placing opposing teams, opposing offenses close to the goal line. And to your point, when you have both an aggressive play calling head coach that likes to go for it in certain situations and a kicker that can kick from beyond 60, like how many times are you punting towards or near the middle of the field trying to get the opposing team inside the 10? Like those opportunities, like you said, are going to decrease this year. So it's not, I don't want to say like, negating the importance of a punter or diminishing the importance but you're right when you have an offense like this and, and a mindset to go for it and to kick long field goals it's it, it's it definitely matters a little bit less compared to re- recent years let's get to a couple quick ones and then we've got mr generosity aka mr whisper uh with another super chat here and hey if you want your voice heard, we're, give us a super chat as well. Uh, 859, do you, do you think Joe Burrow will play Saturday in the preseason game at all against the Rams, John? I think there's a better likelihood that a fan charges the field with two Rams helmets and charges Aaron <laughs> Donald than Joe Burrow snapping in Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> uh, given what happened in practice on Thursday, it's like, Part of me is like, hey, get a series in there, Joe. Just kind of get warmed up and comfortable. But given what happened this week, I'm like, don't even. Just <laughs> don't even. Don't even. I, I don't even want him. I don't even want him in there. Let's not even. You know, you're you're playing with fire there, so I don't think so. And then we had a funny one up here because of Mr. Joe Burrow. A nice, uh, a nice segue question. Terry King here is it Kroger or Krogers? Uh, I got I got news for you folks out in Southern California. I think it's Kroger. I think I say Kroger's, but I think it's Kroger. That's just me. But Kroger owns a large grocery chain out here called Ralph's. So mm-hmm. I don't have Kroger. I have Ralph's just like I think you guys have Safeway, right? Um, no idea what that you, is. Okay. Safeway is another gr- large grocery chain that owns Vaughn's, which is uh, our also Safeway. also don't know what that is. Yeah. So we have – so when you go into a Vaughn's or you go – let's say you go into a Ralph's. Okay. And they have their 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 brand. Uh their brand stuff is Kroger. So that's that's what Ralph's mm. is out here. It's it's our Kroger. But my understanding, Terry, and John can answer this far better than I can, is that it's Kroger No S, just like Burrow No S. Hey, is it is it the Mandela effect where you think you like know something, but it, it's not like another group of people? <laughs> do, is that really it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I've never noticed an S at the end of the of Kroger's name. Um so it, it's not it's it's just it's just kroger i think when people say it it's just like the possessive now like kroger's like right products or something like that so maybe that's where people get confused or it's just the same thing with putting an s on the end of joe burrow's name like burrow's ends up being something that people say a lot but i think it's just also just that possessive thing so yeah it's kroger singular not plural that's how I have it. All right, let's get to Mr. Whisper, who says he thinks he's got a steak dinner for us at this point. Well, I got news for you, Mr. Whisper. This isn't going to a filet for John and I. This is going to the Pollock Family Foundation. So appreciate your generosity. Regardless, leaving out the H boys being Hubbard and Hendrickson. How is our pass rush looking right now? Is Osai, Carter, Gunter, et cetera, bringing, bringing it, in your opinion? Do they still need work? 
yes and yes. Go listen to our interview and or a, a write-up on Cincy Jungle with our interview with Sam Hubbard, who you can hear from his mouth about these guys. He has been pleasantly surprised with these guys per his words. Now, he's going to talk up his teammates, undoubtedly. We know that. But he had the, him using the phrase pleasantly surprised kind of, oh, okay, I like, I like hearing that because maybe he didn't have that high of expectation. He thought that a lot of the snaps are going to be on he and Hendrickson again this year without Ogunjobi back in the fold. But he likes what he has seen from those. And by the way, name not mentioned by Mr. Whisper, Cam Sample, we found out that he had been working out with Sam Hubbard over the the, the offseason. I didn't know that, at least before talking to him. So he's saying, and, and Sample has looked improved this, this preseason as well. So, you know, I think Osai is still kind of getting back into things after yeah. that really strong debut last year and then obviously missing the entire year. So I think that's going to be a slower ramp up there. But when that gets going, I think everybody's going to be excited about that. You hope for some improvement from Sample. Carter's going to be a movable piece. Gunter has shown a couple of things. No more Wyatt Hubert. Questions about Khalid Kareem. So there's a lot of stuff to sort out here, John. Yeah, I think it's right now it's hard for me to answer the question because of the Osai factor. He's taken 13 snaps as a pass rusher through two games. That's all we have on him and going back to Tampa Bay. That was a year ago, but he looked good. But I, I feel like the group that they have right now, you got Khalid Kareem, Cam Sample, Jeff Gunter. They're all very similar stylistically as pass rushers. They're they're power guys. They're not really guys that can, you know, kill you off the edge with, with like this this explosion, right? They can't bend under, you know, tackles and you know, bend around the edge. I feel like if any one of these guys can do that, it's Osai. And we haven't really seen him fully unleashed yet. And I feel like that is the missing link to this group of pass rushers is what Carl Lawson to an extent brought when he was here. So they had, you know, obviously Hendrickson and Hubbard, they're great in their own right, but having that third guy that adds another dimension is definitely the thing that can elevate the group to where it needs to be because they need to be better at rushing the pass than they were last year beyond just Hendrickson. So to me, Osai is, is that variable and we haven't truly seen, you know, him fully unleash it because they're easing him back. So until we see him in the regular season, completely, you know, leash off, go attack the passer in ways that you can, maybe we'll get more clarity on this, but I feel like the guys they have are fine. It's just, I think they are looking for that extra boost. They are definitely looking for that extra boost. And should they get that? I think that's going to, I mean, they've got the majority, vast majority of the defense intact minus Ogan Joby. Um, you know, you've got some other additions and, and different players, but they're going to need to get some more, not only to relieve and bring an extra, you know, kind of niche aside from Hendrickson and Hubbard, but they're going to need to make up for what Ogan Joby brought. What, what did he have last year? Seven sacks, six sacks, mm-hmm. something like that. So, um, I mean, they're going to need to piece that together from a number of different players, not only from the outside, but also people who can rush on the inside. So they're going to need to figure that out and, um, you know, get, get some additional pressure relief, take some of that relief on themselves, as opposed to putting it all on Hendrickson and Hubbard. But um, I think there's a lot of upside. There's a lot of question marks at this point as well. So uh, good question though, Mr. Whisper, thank you so much for your generosity today. That's going to go help out the Pollock family foundation. Got an email, John. And this one's for you, my friend. Oh boy. It, it is t- It is titled, uh, it's from Clifford. Uh, Cincy Connection is the title of the email. UC, University of Cincinnati, had eight players drafted this year, which rivals Bama, Ohio State, etc. Punter Kevin Huber is the only Bearcat on the Bengals roster. Now that UC is becoming a perennial top 25 team, will the Bengals look more closely at drafting from Clifton? Um, or would... Uh, it would have been awesome to have traded up for Sauce Gardner or Kobe Bryant or have Jerome Ford, Alex Pierce fill roles on the squad. But basically, is this now going to be a well wherein the Bengals, that you see being that well, is this going to be a well wherein the Bengals start tapping it a little bit more often? I mean, there are players I can remember. Oh, gosh, who was that wide receiver? They, they had a running back a few years back. There was a wide receiver. I think the Rams had him. He was a good return man as well. Uh, he's probably like 10 years ago now. Isaiah um, Pede, Marty Gilliard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Both those guys, Marty Gilliard yeah. and Isaiah Pede. Thank you. Yes. Um, those were, I mean, Bengals fans were drooling over those guys. The Bengals didn't go that route. They have more frequently gone, much more frequently gone with the Ohio State guys. But do you see now 
the Bengals going after UC or is it because they like those big schools and those players from the the big conferences, big schools, are they going to still kind of shy away from that? I will say I still stand by that. They should have drafted Connor Barwin over Ray Maluga, yeah, but you yeah. know, that's just, that, that, that was just me. I, uh, even though Ray Maluga was amazing in college. Mm-hmm. Um, so the thing with this is for one, I don't think the Bengals are scared or they're not hesitant to draft from anywhere anymore. I feel like there's always been the thing where they uh, um, prioritize power five schools. And I feel like they've kind of, drifted away from that bias in recent years obviously Cordell Volson from North Dakota State even Cam Sample from like Tulane being a fourth round pick that that still seemed very early for like the traditional Bengals to to steer away from some of the big programs they've always been in Alabama Georgia plenty of guys on, on the roster from those schools in the past so I feel like you see being like good now a consistent top 25 team I like the sound of that I feel like that doesn't necessarily increase the chance of Bearcats becoming Bengals, but also the more important thing to me, they have two coaches on the staff that have been with UC at a, at a certain point. Zach Taylor was the offense coordinator there, mm. and Doug Rossfeld, who's never talked about because he's not technically a coach, but he's like the director of coaching operations. He was mm-hmm. with UC with Zach Taylor as well. So they have connections to the campus. They li- live right next to the campus. They always are in person for pro days and, and I'm sure many scouting trips. So yes, as UC's talent pool increases, there's a conversation to be had about, you know, drafting those guys kind of earlier or just not just being like college free agents or anything like that. So, yes, naturally, I think it increases, but I, I don't think they were ever like, I guess, shy or afraid of taking guys from like group of five schools anyways. And especially the fact that being in Cincinnati, they have connections to these guys probably on a personal level, too. They're able to you know find out, you know, their livelihood, their childhood, their uh, everything that they care about before drafting these guys. So that definitely helps, too. Yeah, and then, of course, they always have the local, what is it, the local tryout, the local uh, practice day, or right around the mini camp stuff. So, I mean, they always give other guys a look that aren't drafted, that are from local schools and stuff. And usually they, they bring in a couple of those guys throughout, uh, you know, the, the training camp, preseason, you know, OTAs, that sort of thing. That, you know, a couple of guys get their get their shot. And it's not just UC guys. It's also local kids from local high schools and, and that sort of thing. So, I mean, they, they do their part. Uh, obviously, I understand that people want more because of what since the University of Cincinnati has shown. And it has been quite impressive. Um, side note, John knows last year when I went out to the game against the Vikings, I did catch a UC game. I think they were playing, who was it, Kent State? Or I, I forget who it was. They yeah, were playing, don't remember. Uh, Murray State? Murray State? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, they they walloped them but heck of an awesome experience really cool and, and, and you can tell that the city the greater area is really rallying around the Bearcats which is really cool and they had a special season last year so um, I think more good things are, are, are to come I really like their head coach and you know I think like you said there are some connections there that can't really be denied but we'll see what happens yes yeah, so we had a question from Alex Duggins which I think is, is worth bringing up now because of the new topic but he's asking what would it take for the front office to give Jesse Bates a big long-term contract? And Anthony, I know we've talked ad nauseum about Jesse Bates, but I feel like there's there's an angle that we can take here to really you know, enlighten this part of the conversation. Because now Bates isn't eligible for an extension or any type of contract until he enters free agency next year. Now the Bengals can tag him and whatnot, but they've rarely ever double tagged a player and rarely does that even happen in the NFL in general. So in all likelihood, like they're going to have like a window to extend him off of that free agency or the franchise tag, or he's just going to enter free agency. And that comes at a terrible timing for Jesse Bates to remain with the Bengals because what it would, what it would have taken for this to have already happened was the Bengals offering more money up front in terms of guaranteed money. And they just weren't comfortable doing that, or they were incapable of doing that. We still don't have a full clear picture of their financial details, but next year, with both Joe Burrow and T. Higgins needing contracts, needing money up front, needing cash on hand to complete those contracts, which they definitely want to do that next year. I just, even with the Bengals bringing in more money through sponsorships and the, the stadium name, I just don't think there's any part of the pie there for Jesse Bates at this point. I think this situation has played out to the point where Dax Hill takes over from next year. Jesse Bates gets the contract that he deserves from another team and they use whatever money that they can scramble together to pay for T Higgins and Joe Burrow. Most importantly, Joe Burrow. So I I think whatever that happened, I think the fact that that timing now 
there's just not enough cash for for base at this point. Agree with you. And it's also a relative term when you say a big long-term contract. The Bengals likely feel that they've put a big long-term contract for them on the table for him. So what it's going to take for the Bengals at this point to re-sign Jesse Bates to a big long-term contract is for him to likely accept something that is on the table and or very similar because Jesse Bates on the field somehow has a subpar year this year. That's what it, that's honestly what it would take at this point. I think, I think at this point, the Bengals have offered what they're going to offer. They may up it a little bit. They may tweak it a tiny bit, but they'll probably reoffer some, they, they want him here, but I think they will probably reoffer him something like that. Kind of knowing that this probably isn't going to be taken and that's that. And they've probably got that contract, obviously, based on how they've structured it and, and what they had in mind this last summer and, and up up to the point that they could negotiate with him for the franchise tag. They had a number in mind. They had the salary cap figures in mind with the m- contracts that you mentioned coming around the block with Higgins and Burrow. So they had it. Str- I, th- these are the Brown family. And the organization is very astute in working the salary cap. Very rarely, if ever, are they in salary cap hell or anything like that. So obviously what they had on the table is going to be, it was structured in with the other contracts they have coming up in mind. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that, that's just kind of obvious. So I, for a big long-term contract for Jesse Bates and the Bengals, the only way I see that happening is that it's considered what they have on the table or something very similar to it is a big long term contract and Bates does not play very well or as a subpar year this year and decides that the market has dried up a little bit for him based on other safeties getting paid a lot of big money and other teams maybe not needing a safety as much going forward next year. That's the only way, you know, kind of a lot of moving parts there. That's really the only way that I see this happen. And then you go, okay, well, if he doesn't have a great year, and the Bengals have the leverage hand here. I mean, is, is that same contract even valid? Is that same contract even worth what you're – so there's there's other questions that go with that. But all in all, you hope Bates has a good year. You hope he gets paid very handsomely the following offseason. If that's with the Bengals, great. It's likely that it's not going to be with the Bengals. And, you know, you just hope for him personally and on the business side, he gets a good contract and he plays well, stays healthy this year. Yeah, I think – if he doesn't play that well, if he plays even worse than last year, it, it's not that the Bengals can offer him less. It's that the Bengals won't offer him at all. They just won't value him at, at that price point. And then he will get whatever deal, probably a similar deal to, to what he would have gotten regardless from another team, just because he's a 26-year-old safety that has like ability. Like it, He either plays well and takes the deal that he declined for the past year and a half, or... He, he doesn't, and then the Bengals just aren't even interested at all. Right. Uh, let's see if we've got a couple of other questions before we get on out of here. Good question there, though. Um, yep. and, and really, what would it take? What else would it take for the front office to give Jesse Bates a big long-term contract? I mean, really, there it would take a tweaking of how they view the safety position and, and you know, what they value paying it. I mean, that's just kind of a – it would take a realignment of their vision of that. Um Let's there was one from uh, this one was pretty good. And this this uh, we'll start closing up here because we're going a lot a lot longer here from Dan, the man in the live YouTube chat. Ken Riley's got one foot in the Hall of Fame deservedly. So what can be slash is being done to promote Ken Anderson's candidacy? Number 14 was the best quarterback of his era, with the possible exception of Roger Staubach and maybe Fran Tarkenton. Man, like I I feel as more Bengals get inducted. Maybe it's a combo yep. of uh, Ken Riley and Willie Anderson this year that definitely paints Ken Anderson in a, in a greater light. As far as like, I, I feel like the fans, the Bengals fans have done a great job of, of spearheading this. Like the, there's an account called like at Bengals hall of fame that always posts stats and, and promotes, you know, Ken Anderson and Ken Riley for that matter. So I feel like there's been a lot of, 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 uh, grassroots development on, on that side of things um, but it, it does come down to like how much support that they have in the voting room and there's I want to say that I want to say Bengal Jim has been um, kind of mm-hmm. highlighting you know former players that have been advocating for these guys I think it's mainly been Ken Riley uh, of recently so 
with Ken Anderson, though, like as a quarterback who didn't win a Super Bowl, it's always going to be tough. And that's always going to be like a conversation that creates division between the people who end up deciding on this. But yeah, as more time goes along and there's more Bengals, hopefully in the Hall of Fame, I think it gets easier. I also think um, Paul Dino Jr. brought up a great point about this when Riley was announced as one of the finalists. Um, Ken Anderson equally deserves that recognition and to be where Ken Riley is now. I do wonder if, and this is what Daner said, that they didn't want to have two Bengals be the fin- be two of the three finalists because they just wanted those other guys from other franchises to have that that shine in the spotlight. So maybe that was a factor into it. I feel like where Ken Anderson is now is is pretty good in terms of the progress, him being one of those 12 or 14 semifinalists. And it just might take a little bit more time. But I don't think there's anything more that the fans or the team needs to do or can do to promote what everyone already should know. Right. Bengal Jim and Jamie, James, Tom, who run, who run Talking Football uh, with Bengal Jim and friends. I mean, they do an excellent job of highlighting former players. I, I, I think, I don't know if, the, if I want to let the cat out of the bag, but one of those guys may or may not be behind that Bengals Hall of Fame Twitter account that you mentioned there, John. So, um, you know, I, they do a great job of highlighting players, you know, giving them platforms not only on their show, but at the tailgates and all kinds of different things. So um, I, I think they do a good job. I think we've tried to do our part, not only on Cincy Jungle, but on this show, you know, highlighting him and talking to him about Hall of Fame. And then, of course, the Bengals organization doing the right thing, finally putting him in the ring of honor, the inaugural class there. So all of those things bring, you know, uh, you know, uh, outside eyes, I guess, on Ken Anderson that maybe weren't there. And then, of course, it's just it, more team success right now as much as it doesn't make sense the more the team is successful right now the more eyes go on the Cincinnati Bengals more people learn about their history more people learn about the players that's just kind of how it goes and then on top of that John you look at when Ken Anderson played you look at some of the names there uh that that are in that that Dan mentioned Staubach Tarkenton Anderson played in this era that he changed a lot of things you know in terms of how downfield passing worked and everything and he was kind of an innovative quarterback unfortunately for him he was kind of in his career overlapped a lot of star and big name players that uh because of team success because of their own successes etc overshadowed him right or wrong I'm talking about Terry Bradshaw who was in his own division right you got a guy like that playing over the, the many, many of the same years, along with those names. Then you've got Joe Montana, who comes along towards the end of uh, Ken Anderson's great career, beats him in the Super Bowl. I mean, so there's just kind of a lot of unfortunate circumstances of when he played that also play into this thing that kind of gets him overshadowed a little bit. But I think he is deserving of that. I think, like you said, it's going to take him a, a while longer, unfortunately. Um, but I think he will eventually get in there and hopefully the Bengals, the fans, and of course the team does their part on the field, off the field to help, uh, you know, bring awareness to, to great players like this. So um, it's a little unfortunate, but there are a lot of factors at play here, I think. Yeah. And I, I think also like uh, football outsiders, i um, I posted the the link there in, in the mm-hmm. chat. They they ran a great story about putting Anderson's career from a statistical perspective into context with the modern game and some of those modern metrics. And it really does stand out. And maybe you know the more type of pieces that are released like this, the more that we learn about the intricacies of well, you know the the differences between playing then and playing now, and what stands out from a contextual standpoint. I feel like as that conversation evolves, it will eventually reach the doors of the hall of fame. But yeah, like it's unfortunately, I feel like the voting process hasn't really changed and the criteria hasn't really changed. And we've just heard a lot of not great things regarding the Bengals and that. So maybe until that sees like a, a, an overhaul and maybe it never will, we won't see that much progress, but I feel like there has been some progress with, with Ken Anderson for sure. Yeah, and I'm seeing a lot of stuff about you know different quarterbacks. You know, they won a Super Bowl. They're not getting in the Hall of Fame. Well, of course, but I'm. I, I, that's the imperfection of the Hall of Fame voting process, and that's the. Uh, th- there was someone I forget who it was, but someone talked a lot about the fact that in the 70s and 80s, you basically had what four, five, six teams that were always on national mm-hmm. TV and that was it. It was to a lesser extent, the Vikings because they were good, but you had the Cowboys, the Steelers, the Raiders. Um, 
you know, I, who else am I forgetting? Maybe the Rams in the early days because they had the fearsome force that you brought up the other night. Um, you know, I mean, there were a couple of teams that were just on all the time and the Bengals just were not one of them. And those kinds of things also hurt candidacy right or wrong. Um, we don't make yeah. the rules here. We're just we're just telling you that there are a lot of different factors that unfortunately hurt a player like Ken Anderson get his rightful place in the Hall of Fame. And we're just trying to bring awareness as to why. And that, by the way, great, great find on that link too, John. I've, I've read that before. Um, yeah. The football outsiders there, but uh, we don't make the rules guys. I mean, we're just relaying what we see we and what we hear. I know, I know. I wish we did. Well, we've gone almost an hour. Any others you want to get to before we get on out of here, John, we got to a lot today. This show flew by. Um, any others you want to get to before we hop out of here, my friend? Yeah, real quick, we had one from Dave Lennox uh, half an hour ago. He's asking, if the season had to start today, would you guys be comfortable with Cordell Volson or Jackson Carmen? If so, why? What improvements have you seen from them? I feel like this is pretty simple. Like, it's it's Volson at this point. Just the fact that he's, in the last week, taking all the practice reps with the ones. He's, he's started uh, a full preseason game. He's got those reps in. We just haven't seen enough. We have seen no improvements from Jackson Carmen, unfortunately. It was... A weird conversation during training camp when he was the unquestioned starter there, but it was still a competition. And then he just did not perform when it mattered. And now he hasn't practiced with the ones in a while. So if it had to start now, like you want the guy that's playing and practicing between the starters on the offensive line. So like the, it, it really is just an, an easy question right now. So until Volson completely screws it up, if that happens, it's it's him. For the reasons you mentioned and that last sentiment you mentioned until he totally screws it up, that's that doesn't seem to be who Cordell Volson is, is totally sure. screw up. The lows are just not as low as they are with Jackson Carmen right now. The highs may not be as high, but the lows are not as low. And right now, as that stands as the weak link along that offensive line, you kind of just need someone that's that's just going to stand pat and maybe that's all Volson's going to be and that's okay. Um, But for right now, when you've got a a complete retooling of the offensive line, you just need a guy that the the lows aren't going to absolutely devastate a drive, a play, a game. And, and right now Volson, even as inexperienced as he is in the NFL, that seems to kind of be who he is. And boy, John, have we come a long way from people clamoring for Cordell Volson to start at left guard when just in April, everybody said he was his, the, he, they were, the fans were saying, this was my least favorite pick in the draft. Yeah. Who was this guy? I can't believe they picked this guy. And now they, we are believing and or clamoring for him to start over Jackson Carmen at left guard. It's kind of crazy how things have changed. There's also a coping period with Jackson Carmen for sure. After they didn't really address left guard, it's like, oh, well, you know, there's, there's a year to jump that could be possible for him. And then again, we didn't hear anything on the field bad about him mm-hmm. up until August. So there wasn't anything that kind of went against that, those coping mechanisms. But as soon as that Cardinals game happened, yeah, Bolson, let's see what you got. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And I think that's, I, I, honestly, I heart of hearts, gut, gut of guts right now. That's kind of where I think the Bengals are with this right now. I think they're just saying, you know, we've, we've tried and we've, you know, we're still going to work with Carmen. We're still going to see, I mean, again, still a very young player. Um, in, in terms of age, I, I think he's younger than Volson, isn't he? Uh, he's he is, 22 yeah. and Volson's 24, I think. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, uh, there, there's still some developmental time there, but it's also, as we talked about with how hard it is to create a perennial winner, a perennial contender, you got to seize the moment here now quickly. And, you know, if it's, again, the offensive line has been a big weakness of this team really for the past handful of years. And now you've retooled things and you just can't afford to let one potential weak link, whoever that may be, you can't you can't really afford to have that right now. And it seems right now that Volson is a less weak link <laughs> than Jackson Carmen, if we can say that. And and Volson has shown some nice things, obviously, yeah. in the preseason. And you know what, Sage Ohio? You want a decent offensive line? I'm telling you, regardless if it's Jackson Carmen or Cordell Volson, the line is at this point decent. Mm-hmm. You, get, you got four pieces that are at the bare minimum quality starters, two of them I would say are high quality comp- compared to the others at their position around the league. The line is at a, it's, it's at a legitimately good spot and mm-hmm. what happens with left guard remains to be seen. But I think, I think you'll get what you're asking for in a decent line. 
Yeah, I mean, and then, you know, last year, the, the entire right side of the line, you're, you had questions on, even with Riley Reef, you know, and obviously into the postseason, not, not great. So seems to be far improved. But, John, thank you for everything today. Thank you all for your great questions. We went long on this one. It's been a little while since we've done it, but it's been a hell of a lot of fun. We answered questions from a number of of different avenues, text, email, all kinds of stuff. So uh, live chats, we appreciate you all tuning in, submitting questions and everything. Uh, anything else that we should address before we hop out of here, my friend? Um, Any score predictions for tomorrow? Score predictions. I'm kidding. Um, you, don't answer that. you don't have to okay. answer that question. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think it'll be something weird. It'll be like uh, 19 to... I don't know, 19 to 16 or something. And any fights tomorrow, I guess is the better question. <laughs> you might, we might see a, a, a little bit of a scuffle. A or two. Yeah. 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 I don't, I don't think there's going to be anything like we witnessed yesterday, but um, I think there might be a little bit of, a little bit of extracurriculars. What about you? Um, you know, kerfuffle. I like that ker- word. Kerfuffle. It might not be a kerfuffle. It might be a, a slight bickering. You know, it might be some, some chitter chatter here and there, but nah, I, I think. I think they kind of got the message from last yesterday. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Well, enjoy the game uh, tomorrow. And, what you know, if you need to catch up on Bengals stuff, not only can you go to cincyjungle.com to get all the articles and everything there, but we've got a lot of cool stuff on the podcast channel, be it from Talking Football with Bengal Jim and Friends. They had Mike Watts, the, the TV preseason voice of the Bengals, on their program this week. Matt Minnick brought a great episode. And then we had our show complete with an interview with Sam Hubbard. And then, you know, we've got this to get you all set up. And then of course we'll get you all kinds of analysis on the website after the game, during the game, all kinds of stuff. And then we'll have a post game show and all kinds of different things next week as we charge to the regular season and it is right around the corner. It's crazy, but uh, John, have a good weekend, my friend and enjoy the game. I will talk to you next week, man. All right.